Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Salvino Bonatti of the Bonatti Winery on Mount Etna on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Thanks, Levy. I'm fine. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Your family got there in the 80s and yes. started working in terms of production as opposed to just selling the grapes that your earlier ancestors had farmed. My um, great-grandfather purchased vineyards in the town of Via Grande. My grandfather was a pharmacist. He was not too keen to develop uh, this family passion further. So we almost skipped a generation. And then it was my father in the 80s that actually started making wine very, very, very seriously. He was a pioneer. He reclaimed some vines. He purchased others. He did some like long-term lease deals with small growers who didn't want to sell. So that today we own or control vineyards on the three good sides of Etna. Your father starts bottling under the Bonatti winery name in the late 80s. And what was the evolution of the portfolio from him starting that process to now? My father is uh, a typical guy who, um, after reaching a certain age, in his case, the age of 43, and coming from a successful career with his father in the, uh, in the pharmaceutical field, he's always been a wine lover like you and I, like those who are listening. And he wanted to make good wine. At the beginning, he did not bottle name under the name Benanti. He purchased vineyards in the north face of Etna, as well as the ones that he owned in Via Grande, and he decided to call his winery Tenuta, which is estate, di Castiglione. Castiglione is a place on Etna. Um, so for the first couple of vintages, he did not want to put his name on the, on the label because he was not sure whether the wine would be good enough. But from vintage number three, he decided that the wine was good enough to bear his name. So the wine has been called Benanti since maybe uh, the early 90s. He decided to make wine on Etna because he had tasted uh, so-called elegant fine wines from Piemonte, from Burgundy. And he had found elements in common between the, uh, the climatic conditions of those parts of Europe and, and Mount Etna. And then by reading the Appellation Rules, which have really not changed much since the 60s, um, he reached the conclusion that one could make good wine on Etna. So he just started with his own means. He hired an enologist, 
uh, who, who has then become quite a famous analogist on Etna, Salvo Foti, whom we're always very grateful to. And Salvo uh, had developed his career mostly in Western Sicily, working with larger wineries, but his roots were on Etna. So he jumped at the opportunity of making wine in the place where he was born. So they both came together. They were humble enough to admit that they needed some assistance. So they hired some consultants, uh, Professor Di Stefano from the um, Enology Institute of Piemonte and a Frenchman, uh, Jean Sigris from Burgundy. So one advised them on uh, how to make the wine, the analogy, the Professor Di Stefano. The other one advised mostly on how to train the vines. And after several trial and error attempts and different approaches, eventually they, they nailed uh, <laughs> the, uh, the best model, let's say. So my father started making wine and um, although the reception was, uh, was good among the very small community of wine lovers that were curious enough to try a wine from such an obscure appellation, um, it is true that the market just did not seem to be big enough We've never had the intention of becoming a big winery, and we certainly do not want to become a big winery, but we wanted to be in a position to satisfy a slightly bigger audience than the one that actually turned up. So my father, and with hindsight, I must say he was wrong, he decided to purchase land in southern Sicily, in an area called Noto, uh, where they grow Nero Davola. I think that uh, he, he had good intentions. He said, Nero Davola is a grape which is doing well. You know, if I make a good Nero Davola, this might pave the way for Etna. So he's made a big investment in southern in Sicily. We have then ended up several years later selling that vineyard in these very days, actually. So he started off as a pure Etna winery. In the years 2000, he branched out into other parts of the island, including the island of Pantelleria. And uh, he grew his range from a core of a or five Etna wines to over 20, including grappas. And uh, he started experimenting with international varietals such as Cabernet, Chardonnay, blending these with uh, Nerello Mascalese and Caricante, respectively. And probably uh, he spread it himself too thinly. This we can say with hindsight. I don't want to be harsh on him. He was probably right to, uh, to pursue that route. Uh, but while he was doing so, others had spotted the Etna opportunity. So while he was busy handling two appellation areas, others have come to Etna to follow his footsteps with the intention of making Etna wine only. My brother and I were observing this from a distance. We are, we are twins, we are 41 now, we left home at the age of 15 and we only came back to Sicily in, in our 30s. We went to high school in Geneva, then we lived in London, UK for many years, graduating in business. Uh, and eventually working in um, in investment banking. And we've been looking at our father from a distance. We were quite curious to see what he was doing. Uh, but then when we landed on planet Sicily again in our 30s, and most specifically on the, on, on, in the, on the wine world, we took a look at the winery from an external point of view with enough cold blood to understand that he was handling far too many, far too many labels and there was really no point in making wine, which is, was non-Etna. So we asked him to trust us. <laughs> Very, with fatherly love, he said, okay, fine, what do you guys want to do? Uh, we said, well, if you give us full power of attorney, we'll turn things around. We have a jewel, which is our Etna collection, and we have too much stuff around it, which is uh, not as useful and is absorbing too much of our resources in terms of time, in terms of 
other things. So uh, almost overnight, we uh, disposed of vineyards that uh, had international grapes planted on them, some on Etna, most of them in southern Sicily. We sold in bulk all of the Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Nero Davola that we had in our cellar, and we generated new resources that we reinvested in the core business. Um, we decided that we were only going to have Etna wines, even simply going back to our roots, no rocket science there. So this happened three years ago. And in the last three years, all we have done is stick to this mission and try and improve every day. We still have some ground to cover. There is, uh, there is an, a friend and another vintner who I like to quote, uh, and his name is Ciro Biondi, whose wines I find very good, who says, we as Etna vintners, all of us, the 100 vintners that today work on Etna, we probably need another generation. So let's say 25 years before we can really say, this is what an Etna wine should be like. These are how these grapes behave. And we have maybe 25, 35, 40 vintages under our belt to create enough statistical uh, significance. So all we're trying to do, my brother and I, is be consistent with the decision we have made and try and improve every single piece of our venture to the best of our ability every day. And where are you located today in Sicily? Well, our winery is located on the slopes of the Etna volcano. The Etna volcano is the, the tallest active volcano in Europe. Etna has several slopes, being a mountain, and different slopes deliver slightly different results in terms of wines. So we, we tried to cover the three good slopes of Mount Etna. So the Etna DOC includes pretty much all of the north face of Etna, the east face, which faces the Mediterranean Sea, and the southern face of Etna. So the only slope that is not included in the appellation is the western slope, which faces inland, which happens to be too dry in the summer and too cold in the winter to grow grapes. So it's mostly devoted to pistachio. Um, in terms of wine, if you want to make a wine from Etna and call it a DOC, uh, you must grow your vines within an elevation range of about 450 to 950 meters above sea level, which is roughly about 1,500 to 3,000 feet above sea level on either of the three sides I just mentioned. And you must use the grapes Nerello Mascalese, the predominant red grape, uh, its little brother, Nerello Cappuccio, and Carricante, the, uh, the white grape. And you find that different areas give different styles of wine or are more suitable to one of those grapes? The amount of sun they receive and the uh, swings in temperatures between night and day differ. And also the soil, there is no standard soil on Etna. Uh, obviously the soil is volcanic. It's the result of several thousands of years of lava solidifying and then eventually breaking up so depending how young how many millions years the lava is of age then it will be more or less sandy the predominant soil is made of pumice skeleton that we in sicilian refer to as ripidu uh, ripidu is the typical soil of etna volcanic pumice highly draining because of its of the air gaps that are left within the particles so soils on etna tend to be highly draining we cannot aid the vines in any way. Irrigation is forbidden. The vine must make it on its own. And, and we make their life even harder by following very strictly the appellation rules that dictate that the space between one vine and the other 
should be about a meter, uh, 1.25. I'm not sure how much that is in, in feet, but let's say one step away. Vines are one step away from one another. So the density per hectare or per acre is very high. And then the total yield per hectare is very low. Hence, each individual vine will have a very low yield itself. So when people plant there, do they typically layer? Do they typically take the same vine and put it under the earth and create a new vine? Uh, mostly today, for prudence reasons, it's better to graft. So if one starts a vineyard from scratch, they will graft using American rootstock. Uh, but in the past, farmers have been uh, using nearby vine to create a new one. And the reason that they would graft is what? Because phylloxera is still a part of our life. Phylloxera has not been very successful at harming some vines on Etna, but it has destroyed several others. So the phylloxera is still very much present. And we must, um, you know, to preserve our investment, when you start a, a new vineyard, uh, it would be wise to, to graft. And what do you find about specific varieties working in different zones and slopes? It has been uh, proved by those who have done uh, research that, for example, Nerello Mascalese is quite a versatile grape that can grow pretty much mm, all of the three sides of the, uh, of the Etna volcano that are included in the appellation, whereas Carricante, the white grape, delivers its best result on the eastern slope, which is closer to the ocean, so it gets more of the nice sea breeze, which delivers the salinity, and also on the southern slope. So I would say... Probably Nerello Cappuccio behaves in a similar way. So Nerello Mascalese is a very versatile grape that grows anywhere and everywhere, whereas Nerello Cappuccio and Carricante prefer to grow on the eastern or southern slope of the volcano. And what are other differences between those grape varieties? I mean, obviously Carricante is white and then the other two are red, but in terms of growing them, how do they differ? The first main difference between Nerello Mascalese and Nerello Cappuccio, first of all, the two grapes are not really related. They were named Nerello Mascalese and Nerello Cappuccio by local farmers. But biologically, I'm not aware of any uh, similarity between the two. Nerello Mascalese is definitely a local grape. It used to grow all over Mount Etna and all the way down to the sea. There was what we call in Italian... Contea, which is a county known the county of Mascali. Mascali is a town on the slope of Mount Etna, between Etna and the sea. And Mascali is the town after which the grape was named. So Narello Mascalese was all over. And Etna used to represent almost 50% of all of the Sicilian wine production. Today it's just three. So after the phylloxera hit Europe, vines on Etna were replanted only at the higher elevations and not so much in the valley between Etna and the sea. So Narello Mascalese is definitely a local grape. Narello Cappuccio, on the other hand, its origin has not been clearly identified. A lot of people that write about native grapes uh, of Italy have written a little bit about these grapes, but have not really been able to uh, put Cappuccio on the map and say that's exactly wh what it is and where it comes from. Some people believe that Cappuccio grows in other parts of Italy under different names. But the two are different in the sense that uh, Narello Mascalese and Narello Cappuccio have a different color, different leaves. Narello Cappuccio uh, tends to ripen a little bit earlier, but it really depends which side of the volcano we're talking about. But in general, they behave in a similar way. They tend to be both quite generous in terms of the quantities of grape they deliver, 
which is why it's crucial to prune on Etna. You must prune in order to meet the very low yield thresholds that are included in the appellation. If you just let the vine be, it will tend to produce quite a lot of grape. And you obviously don't want that because you will, you will lose the quality. So pruning is key. And they're both quite generous. Nerello Mascalese grown elsewhere on the island because Nerello Mascalese has surpassed the boundaries of Etna and has reached every single corner of, of Sicily, making it the second most popular grape after Nero Davola. And elsewhere, grown with different training systems, it delivers quite a lot of grape. On Etna, because of pruning, because of the, of the bush system that we try to use, or the closest we can get to that for more modern training methods, delivers much smaller quantities of grape. But it is otherwise quite a generous vine. And so is Cappuccio. And actually, so is Carricante. Carricante come, the name Carricante apparently um, is owed to uh, the Italian word carico, which means loaded. So in the past, when uh, viticulture on Etna was all about producing as much wine as possible in order to sell it in bulk to somebody else, Carricante was left uh, free to produce as much grape as you wanted, and carico means loaded. So these vines were loaded with clusters. In general, these three grapes are all quite generous. Carricante is a little bit uh, more sensitive to um, cold weather, which is why it is rarely planted on the north face of Etna. It benefits from uh, a slightly warmer, warmer climate. Therefore, it delivers pretty good results on the south, but for best acidity, we should go east. That's where the Etna Bianco Superiore comes from. One of the things that you have that a lot of people don't is backstock into the 90s of wines that your family has made. What have you seen in terms of maturation in the bottle for Etna Rosso and Etna Bianco? I would start with Etna Bianco because that is probably the most surprising thing that we have witnessed. When my father started making an Etna Bianco Superiore in particular, he, uh, by reading the appellation, there is no obligation as to how long the wine should age before being released. So his idea was to make as typical a wine as possible. And the first decision he made was to use Carricante grape and no other grape. The appellation does allow you to blend Carricante with a second grape, which is sometimes Catarratto. Catarratto grows on Etna, delivers good results, but is originally a grape which was first planted in much warmer climates in western Sicily. He was then he was then brought to Etna, together with some minor varieties such as Minella, uh, some Trebbiano, Grecanico Dorato. But Caricante really is the truly authentic local grape. So his decision was to use Caricante only. Caricante has a, a very good acidity, uh, which is why it must go through malolactic fermentation. And it requires a little bit of time before it is ready for consumption. So he tried tasting the wine after two years, three years, and then eventually released it after four years. And that has become our trademark. I'm not aware of other Etna Bianco Superiore that are released after four years. So because we knew that the race was going to be long, we have given it a lot of fuel to run on. So our Etna Bianco can be enjoyed for at least 10 years after harvest, but even more in good vintages. We have recently had a 94 at the winery or 2001 the other day this wine starts off as a very crisp mineral wine with a lot of uh, a lot of nerve a lot of vibrance and then over time it becomes smoother it develops 
plinty note and, and a petroly note. So the elegance, uh, the acidity is definitely retained over the years. The wine just becomes more and more complex and less and less crisp over time. It becomes smoother. Uh, so the, the food pairings may, may vary depending on the age of the, of the grape. Whereas when we talk about the reds, Nerello Mascalese, usually after four years from harvest, which is usually the time when we release our wine after a traditional vinification uh, with uh, about 21 days of maceration, about 26 degrees uh, Celsius in, uh, in steel vats and then aging in uh, second passage French oak. After this, the wine can last, at least in our experience, for uh, 15 or 20 years. It starts off as a quite earthy wine with a nice fruit, but then over time the fruit becomes more and more ripe. And I would say that the mineral note comes out more smoky. And obviously the color becomes lighter around the edges. It, it's a wine, Narello Mascalese plus Narello Cappuccio in the, in the traditional blend of 80-20, which is the traditional Etna DOC blend. It's a wine which has a very good structure given by the acidity and the tannins. Over time, uh, it retains its acidity and its tannins just become a little bit more gentle. It does take up quite a bit of time though, so we always recommend laying the wine down for a few years and tasting it later. I must say that, yes, you're right, we have a library and we sometimes like to try the wine from 15, 20 years ago and see how it goes. If the wine is properly conserved and, and the cork does its job, then uh, I must say that we're always very positively impressed with the evolution and we still estimate that these wines have a few more years to go. And what's the difference between the Serra della Contessa and the Rovatello in terms of being two Etna Rosso that you make? Etna has a different combination of exposure to the sun and uh, swings in temperature between day and night. Rovitello is a wine which is made um, in a place called Rovitello, which is in North Etna. I would say more like Northeast. Rovitello is, these vineyards are at 650 meters above sea level and they face north, northeast, and they go through quite a rough early season. So spring and the beginning of fall can be quite chilly at night. These vines suffer a little bit more than their peers on the southeast where Serra de la Contessa comes from. So let's say that it, it grows in an environment that is slightly more hostile. So vines deliver a wine which tends to be more earthy, probably sharper, uh, some say more typical, although I do not agree, because there is no typical Etna Rosso. It really depends which side of the volcano we're talking about. There are amazing Etnas being made on the southwest. Their fault is that they're made by wineries who are very small and local, and they have not yet reached the shelves of the, of the main bottle shops around the world, but they're really great. So I would say Rovitello is a typical northern Etna, sharper, a little bit more rough, rustic and earthy, whereas Serra della Contessa is grown. The vineyard Monte Serra is on the southeast of Etna, 450 meters elevation, so it's 200 meters less, significantly lower elevation, more exposure to the sun and slightly, slightly more favorable climate. So these vines, obviously they are unaided, we do not irrigate, we let them be, but they go through a slightly less difficult season 
they get a little bit more sun, which is why we harvest them a little bit earlier. And they usually have a little bit more sugar and therefore alcohol. Slightly bigger, I would say. And you age the Edna Rosso in, in wood, but the Edna Bianco you do in stainless steel the whole yes. way through. The Edna Bianco, in the opinion of my father and, and the enologist, and I agree, should be as lean a wine as possible. The malolactic fermentation, the residence and the contact time with the, with the fine lees provide the smooth element to it. We, we do not believe that an external addition from oak would be beneficial. The wine would just become a less typical wine, in our opinion, because you would have this external flavor that would not add much, we believe. It would probably make it more similar to other wines, and uh, we would probably lose our authenticity. Maybe I'm being a little bit strict on this, other producers produce amazing Etna Biancos, and they decide to use wood. And the appellation does not say that you cannot. So it's really your personal choice. We want our wine to be very lean, and, and very sharp. Maybe the acidity will be higher. Uh, it will be a slightly more uh, crisp wine than those who are aged in wood, but that's the way we like our wines. For red wines, we use second passage, medium toasting French uh, barriques and increasingly tonneaux because we want, we want to have even less contact between the wine and the wood. We mostly use this wood because of the micro oxygenation opportunity that they afford but we do not really want to add tannins, like um, wood tannins to the wine. So what we are interested in is the micro-oxygenation opportunity, the fact that the wine comes in contact with a little bit of air, obviously not a lot, otherwise you would have an oxidation, but you know, a little bit of air so that it starts breaking up and developing, and developing um, a smoother side in contrast with the remarkable acidity and, and the tannins that are already very prevalent in the red. So uh, we are considering moving to even larger barrels, uh, Piemonte style, I would say, because we tend to work with, with old wood. And uh, so we replace it every so many years and we keep buying barriques, which are two, three, four years of age. So there is a lot of turnover. It might be best in the opinion of our enologist, and I trust him fully to move to larger barrels. At the beginning, these would be obviously new because they're made for us. So we would, have to, we would have to use both the old wood and a little bit of this. And then after a couple of, a couple of years, there's going to be enough wear in them to use just those. So this is an idea. This, I go back to the idea of Etna still being a place where no vinification technique is set in stone. Uh, we all have our style. Um, there is no benchmark. There's a lot of freedom. Some people use cement whom I am not very knowledgeable about. Some use bigger wood, smaller wood, steel only. And that's why Etnas, fortunately, display a lot of variety. So you mentioned that there's no real benchmark. Why do you think that there were so few active wineries in the 80s before your dad got there when it's such a historical zone for wine? Because making wine, unfortunately, is very expensive. And especially on the slopes of Mount Etna, where... Uh, you cannot really use any mechanization. You must use people to work the fields. Wine must then be aged. Investments must be made. And then uh, if there is no market for it because there is no, uh, no awareness, then uh, you risk a lot of, uh, of capital. So it just took one crazy guy. <laughs> I say that with, you know, in, a, in, a, in an appreciative way. I like my father a lot and he was crazy enough 
to risk his own money. And he has taken him a long time to recover. I'm not even sure he has. But definitely, the, it's a very fulfilling experience for him that to be regarded as an ambassador and as a pioneer. I don't know if others would agree that he's a benchmark because uh, uh, he has done things his own way. And many have appreciated what he has done, but some have done things differently after him. So I think the only reason there was, there was not much excellent wine made on Etna is that the vintners who were there before us did not want to risk making, investing the necessary capitals to uh, make a wine which was good enough to, say, um, gain acceptance in a competitive market like the USA in this case. So um, they preferred to not fly too high. My father decided to fly high with a safety net and uh, we are now all grateful to him. I would say there is no benchmark because the appellation does not say much about how you should age the wine, so we all choose our path. And uh, over time, we each refine our technique and uh, we think we have one that delivers very good results. And in particular, there's one thing that I would like to say uh, about us, which may distinguish us a little bit from others. Making wine is a, it's like a chain. You start in the, in the vineyard and you look after your grapes and then uh, obviously you harvest and you, you take the wine, the grapes to the cellar. And then um, there is a very important part of the process, which is the fermentation. Now, if we're talking about local soils, local varietal, very typical local climate, then uh, the, the weak link in the chain in the past was the lack of local yeasts. In 2005, so after several years of making our wines using yeasts uh, purchased elsewhere, we decided to try and synthesize our own yeasts. So this is something which we hope to be able to publish if we obtain the support of scientific publication. In 2005, with our enologist and our analyst, after the fermentation, we have taken samples of must uh, and other elements that were found in the vats, in the cement vats, in the so-called palmentos. Palmentos are vinification halls, like wine presses, scattered around Etna that belonged to small farmers who had definitely never used any commercial yeast and whose fermentation would occur spontaneously. So what they have done, my father and his team, is isolate several of these yeasts test them for resistance to certain agents, uh, vigor, power, efficacy. And they have eventually identified, I think, out of several, I think maybe three or 400, if I'm not wrong, they have identified 13 as viable, and they have uh, then narrowed that down to four, and they have then patented these four yeasts. So we have four Benanti patented yeasts that are then grown for us by a laboratory and that we then use to trigger the fermentation of our wines. And these definitely come from Nerello Mascalese, Nerello Cappuccio, Caricante grapes. And what is your winemaking facility like today? I know historically there's the palmettos on the mountain that you referred to, but where do you ferment your wines in what kind of facility today? Although wine is a romantic product, it must then be produced to the highest standards. So... We have made quite some investments in our, in our facility. If you came to see our facility, you will not find that it is impressive. It's by no means an impressive facility. We will probably build one in, in five years from now. Uh, it's lava stone, 
and it's in three levels inside. But what matters is the equipment that is in it. And we have made quite some investment. My brother and I, with our entrepreneurial mindset three years ago, we invested about 70,000 euro in some temperature control systems and computerized system to monitor everything that is going on in the winery from a great supplier from Verona called Sordato. And our analogist keeps upgrading our facility. Just now I received in my email an offer to lease some new equipment. So we try, we, we try to stay at the forefront of technology. There are so many things that can go wrong during a vinification. You don't want to run that risk. So our facility is quite modern inside and quite traditional on the outside with its lava stone. So we ferment, we vinify, we age using modern infrastructure. And where do you see the winery going in the future? My brother and I simply want to continue doing what we have done so far and try and make wines that can be immediately be recognized as volcanic, mineral, elegant. Just keep doing this. Somebody once told me, if you want to become a great winery, all you have to do is make no mistakes for about 100 years. <laughs> That's what we will try to do. That's what we will try to do. And it's very exciting. And we're very happy to continue this family project. And do you see it maintaining about the same size that it is now, about 20 hectares of vines and same number of bottles? Uh, yes, there is probably a little bit of room for growth. We currently produce uh, 130,000 bottles and... Uh, I think that we could uh, safely grow to 150, 160, retaining a very, very, very high quality, especially what we sometimes refer to as entry-level wines, Etna Bianco, Etna Rosso, which are easier to pour by the glass, uh, less scary to uh, pick from a shelf. These can be produced in larger quantities. We tend to blend from different plots of uh, Caricante on one side, Mascalese and Cappuccio on the other, we have the capacity to grow the production of those and make them available to a wider audience. Uh, so we may grow slightly on that front. And a lot of times I think people refer to Etna wines as Burgundian wines. Do you see that analogy? Is it relevant to you? And why do maybe people say that? What are the hallmarks of, a, of an Etna wine? I would say yes and no. First of all, we're flattered to be compared to Burgundy. I think that some are using this very easy comparison because it's when we say Burgundy, we say, um, in this case, Pinot Noir, which is a grape that a lot of people know, easy to pronounce. A lot of people have already tasted it. They know that it has a light color, a certain type of body, which will not be overwhelming. And they identify it as an elegant wine. So if one says, my wine is similar, you're cutting some corners and you are very efficiently and effectively delivering a message to somebody. So I believe that this has been used mostly for marketing purposes. We do not mention the word Burgundy in our communication for a simple reason. We are Etna and we would like to emphasize Etna as an original wine region. We don't want to copy anybody else, although it is flattering to be associated with a place like Burgundy. So. It's great to be considered as belonging to the broad Elegant Wines League, but it's important for us to speak of Etna, its soil, and specifically its grapes. So I believe it's an easy marketing message, but we refrain from using it because I believe that if we say we are the new Burgundy, then another new Burgundy will appear five years from now, and then another one, and then eventually people will revert to the original Burgundy. We want to be Etna. It's a longer route, but it's a safer route, and it's definitely uh, uh, the result of a more long-term approach. I'm Etna. It will take me a while to tell you what it is. 
I need to open a lot of bottles, have a lot of people try my wines, do more work, but eventually it will sink in and it will just develop stronger roots. So we prefer to not use the word Burgundy, although we do speak of elegant wines and we do speak of, of acidity, minerality and elegance. Salvino Bonatti of the Bonatti Winery would like to emphasize Etna. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levi. Thanks for having me here. Salvino Bonatti of the Bonatti Winery on Mount Etna in Sicily. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.